Today's reading is, to, is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thank you, Joy. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you would fill us again with your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of knowledge and wisdom as we come to your Word. We pray, please, would you be at work in our hearts enlightening our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might know you better, that we might understand what you have to say to us, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Knowing why we need to do something is so, so important. You think of a sign uh, on a bench which says, don't sit on the bench. My guess is that some people won't sit on the bench, but many will. But if the sign on the bench is, don't sit on the bench, wet paint, my guess is that almost everyone, hopefully, is going to obey that one. Knowing why we need to do something is so, so important. It's a principle that some uh, local councils have really cottoned on to as well. When we uh, lived in England, it used to be that you got sent uh, your council tax letter, council tax was rates, and it would tell you, you owe uh, 150 pounds, you need to pay, what you need to do. And some people did it, um, and some people didn't. So they changed tact, and they recognized that you got a far better response rate from people when you told them why. So now we would get letters through the post. I, I hasten to add, we always paid our council tax. But now we'd get letters through the post saying, oh, you owe 150 pounds, you need to pay 150 pounds. Your money goes towards local policing and local schooling and uh, the upkeep of pavements and roads, the reason why you need to pay. And it, got, uh, it was far more effective. Knowing why we ought to do something is really, really important. And it's the same in the Christian life. In our passage today, in those two verses that were read to us, we're told to do two things. We're told to abstain from sinful desires, verse 11, and we're told to live good lives, verse 12. If you wanted to summarize them further, Peter is basically saying to us, don't sin and do good. It's really that simple. But what I love about this passage is that Peter draws us to the why. He gives us powerful reasons to obey. So we're going to look at, uh, I suppose, two headlines uh, this morning. Firstly, for the sake of our souls, say no to sinful desires, say no to the enemy within and secondly, for the sake of your neighbor's souls, 
say yes to good deeds. Let's look at that first one. Say no to the enemy within. We've got a PowerPoint. There we go. For the sake of your souls, say no to sinful desires. Let's have a look um, at verse 11. If you've got your Bibles in front, if you do have a look down, verse 11. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And the command here is really very, very simple. Abstain from sinful desires. In other words, say no to the desire to do what is wrong. It's worth just repeating, that we said this a number of weeks ago when we're looking at chapter one, but just worth repeating it here again, that Peter recognizes here that true believers still have sinful desires. True believers still have sinful desires. Occasionally, occasionally when, when someone becomes a Christian, it's as if God switches off the desire for certain things in their life. Uh, occasionally, you hear someone in their testimony speaking about how they became a Christian and their thirst to get drunk, it was just like a switch that got turned off. Or their inclination to get hot-headed very, very quick was just switched off. Occasionally, that happens. And when it does, praise God, because that's wonderful. But what Peter is saying here is that that's really the exception, not the norm. He's saying that actually far more often, when we become believers... We get given new hearts, we get given new, de new desires, we begin to grow in them, and yet our old sinful desires linger. They hang around like an unwelcome guest. We wish they would go away, but they don't. They linger. If we didn't have lingering desires, lingering sinful desires, Peter wouldn't need to tell us to abstain from them. So he says, True believers will still have these sinful desires. And we know that from our own experience. But what, he's, what he tells us here is that we are to abstain from them. That unlike the world around us, we're to say no to them, to our desire for sin. Why? Well, have a look at verse 11 and think on this, what is it that our sinful desires do? What do our sinful desires do? Let me read verse 11. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. What do our sinful desires do inside us? They wage war against our very soul. So they're not healthy desires, they're harmful. They are, if you like, the enemy within. Uh, India in 1984, uh, it was a very divided country. Uh, the Prime Minister at the time, Indira Gandhi, had become very, very unpopular among Sikhs. On the 31st of October that year, she was walking through her garden uh, her, her own residential garden to go to a, a TV interview. And she was accompanied by, her, by two of her most trusted bodyguards. Uh, they were her favorites. And she felt really safe around them. Uh, she liked them a lot. But before she even got to her interview, 
those two bodyguards drew their guns, turned towards her, and shot her dead. Assassinated by enemies within. Well, those so-called bodyguards, they are like our sinful desires. They wage war against our soul. They, they appear to be the good guys. They appear to want what's best for us. They look like they're on our side, but they are the enemy within, waging war against our souls. In what way do they do that? Well, they draw us away from relationship with God. They draw us away from his perfect design for our lives. They promise us joy and fulfillment and yet deliver us a kind of diminished half existence, luring us down a path which eventually will lead to, to facing God's judgment. They are the enemy within, waging war against our souls. And so with our very best interests at heart, Peter urges us, dear friends, I urge you, he says, say no to your sinful desires. Don't give them access. Shut them down, keep them out, fight them, flee from them as if they were two assassins looking to kill your soul, the enemy within. Not healthy, but harmful. So I wonder for you, which of your lingering sinful desires you find strongest? Maybe it's the desire to grumble, the desire to get glory for yourself, the desire to get your own back, the desire for the sinful relationship perhaps. Sometimes those desires can feel very deep and even kind of feel like they're fundamental to who we are as people. The desire for the emotional affair with someone else's spouse, perhaps. Whatever our sinful desire, Peter says, please, for your own sake, recognize them for what they are. Not healthy, but harmful. Not your friend, but the enemy within, waging war against your soul. Recognize them for what they are and ask for God's help to say no to them. Apparently, in the months before Indira Gandhi was, in, was assassinated, her intelligence committee um, actually ordered that those two bodyguards be replaced. They saw them as a potential security threat, an enemy within. Indira Gandhi heard this advice and tragically for her, chose to ignore it and kept them. What about us? Will we listen to God's warning about our sinful desires. For the sake of your souls, say no to them, the enemy within. But doing what's right and living holy lives and not sinning but doing good, it isn't just the best thing for us. It is also the best thing for those around us. And here we're really moving on to uh, I guess Peter's second point. For the sake of your neighbors, say yes to good deeds. Say yes to good deeds. 2 verse 12. Have a look down again at 2 verse 12. 
live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And the sense of this verse is that a good life can silence even the most ardent critic. And not only that, it can win a hearing for the gospel. It can even persuade a critic to become a Christian, to believe and to glorify God. Good lives persuade critics to become Christians. Now, we're just going to be clear on this for a moment. Um, This isn't a kind of guaranteed formula that's going to work every single time. Uh, Many of us will know uh, critics of Christianity who, despite living uh, among uh, good, faithful Christians, don't turn and glorify God. This isn't some guaranteed formula that's always going to work. Uh, nor is this, a, is this verse a, a kind of complete instructional guide telling us absolutely everything that we need to know on this whole topic of reaching out and witnessing. You know, Peter mentions nothing in this verse about praying for unbelievers or or about speaking the gospel. Those things are important. He stresses them in other places, but not here, because he's not trying to give us a complete instructional guide about everything that we need to know on this topic of reaching out with the gospel and reaching out to those who don't know Christ. Now, Peter really just wants to focus in and to help us to get this one point, that good lives good, distinctive Christian lives are a seriously powerful argument for the gospel. Good lives are a seriously powerful argument for the gospel. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a brilliantly gifted uh, gospel communicator. And Um, As you'll know, he spent much of his life using words to try and persuade people uh, to change their minds about God and very much knew the importance of prayer and of speaking the gospel. But just listen to him on the importance of living distinctly good lives. This is what he writes in Mere Christianity. A tree is known by its fruit, whereas we say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. When we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Or as Peter puts it positively, good lives makes the gospel believable to the outside world. Good lives persuade critics to become Christians. And I just think this is so helpful for us Um, Because often we think it's the opposite. Often we think that being distinctive and being distinctively good is only going to put people off. That blending in is the thing that, that persuades critics to become Christians. That really what we need to do is show the world that we're just like them. And yes, we're to flex on the flexibles. We're to become a Greek to the Greeks. We're to be flexible on things that don't really matter and things that are just cultural. But we are not to blend in. We're not just to adopt the world's moral standards. We're not to live by the world's values in the hope of 
being persuasive. It's wrong, and it's ineffective. It's good lives that persuade critics to become Christians. And I think this is one of the big mistakes that uh, the so-called, that so-called liberal Christianity um, has made. Liberal, so-called liberal Christianity um, says that if we, we're, really, we're going to attract modern-minded people to God, then really what we need to do is to reinterpret the Bible on anything that's controversial, unpopular, or just a bit different. What's really interesting is that amongst um, liberal Christianity, at least in England, um, on the whole, uh, the, the liberal church is shrinking. It's not attracting people. And I think Peter would say, there's no surprise, because there's nothing distinctive there on offer. Blending in is not what persuades critics to become Christians. Peter says, distinctively good lives, however, really do. And this is really, really true in the real world. I think about an author uh, called Rosaria Butterfield. You may have uh, read some of her stuff, very, very good stuff. Um, she was a lesbian. Uh, she was a professor in queer theory. That's, if you like, the kind of intellectual grounds behind the whole LGBTQ movement. Uh, she was very much a vocal critic of uh, Christian morality. Anyway, long story short, she becomes a Christian and has this amazing transformation of life, and is wonderful, and is, as I say, is now a fantastically faithful Christian author. Uh, what started her journey to faith? What was it under God that moved her from being a critic to becoming a Christian? Well, she tells the story of how she had uh, published an article in a local newspaper uh, critiquing uh, local Christians for their view on gender. And she got a load of responses back in the post. Uh, lots of fan mail from people who agreed with her. Uh, lots of what she called hate mail from people who disagreed with her, largely Christians. Um, and when she got these letters, she would sort them. She had one box for fan mail, one box for hate mail. But there was one particular letter, letter that, that popped through her letterbox, and she didn't know where to put it. It was from a Christian um, who disagreed with her stance and, and pushed back and challenged her. And yet, it was kind. She says it was the kindest letter of opposition she'd ever received. And she didn't know where to put it. A couple of times in that week, she would, at the end of the day, uh, put it in the bin. The next morning, she'd fished it out again. She kept doing this until at the end of the week, she thought, well, let's read it again, and let's call the person who wrote it. And that was what began her journey to true saving faith in Christ. Good lives, integrity, kindness, respect, honesty, purity, distinctive lives have the power to persuade critics to become Christians. They are a seriously powerful argument for the gospel. And so just as we close, I guess my challenge for us is Will we embrace distinctively good lives?
distinctively Christian living? Will we, will we devote ourselves to living good, different lives? What's that going to look like? Um, well, I guess we'll find out. If you come back in, in coming weeks, we'll see. Uh, Peter's about to address three different areas where we're to live good, distinctive lives. But let me just keep it more general for today. Let me just touch on two areas, leisure and work, really just as examples of, what, of how this might play out. You think of leisure, you think of sport. For those of you who play sport, yeah. will you do so in a distinctly Christian way? Yeah, not blending in, yeah, by cheating, by arguing, by getting angry and losing the head with the referee, but by playing according to the rules, being respectful towards the referee, yeah, keeping perspective when a teammate has a shocker, seeing your opponent not as some enemy, but yeah, as someone who needs the gospel, someone made in the image of God. If you were to play sport like that, you'd stand out like a, like a, I was going to say a sore thumb. You'd stand out like a healthy thumb. It'd be so different, wouldn't it? A, a seriously powerful argument for the gospel. Or you think about work. At work, will you, uh, will you do your work in a distinctively good and Christian way? Not, cu not, not cutting corners like others might not gossiping about the boss like others might, but living well and distinctly for the sake of your colleagues. Of course, there'll be many, many other scenarios too. Why not at the end, chat it through with someone. In what area can you be distinctive in this week ahead? Because wouldn't it be amazing if on the day when Christ comes back, uh, those folk you play sport with, or your colleagues whom you rub shoulders with every day, or your neighbors, are there with you, alongside you, glorifying God, because they turn to Him as a result of your good life, your self-control, and respect, and perspective, and honesty, and integrity, and purity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not just tell us how we are to live and what we are to do, but in your kindness you give us reasons. Help us, please, to see our sinful desires for what they are, the enemy within, waging war against our soul. Help us, in the power of the Spirit, with your help, to fight them and to keep fighting them. And help us, Heavenly Father, to see good lives as a wonderful thing, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. We pray, please, that you would help us in this. And we pray, please, that through our good living, empowered by you, others might see the power of the gospel, might turn and trust in Christ, and with us on that last day, glorify you our wonderful Savior. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.